Section 8 of How the Codex Was Found by Margaret Dunlop Gibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 8. A Greek Description of Sinai. I translate the following description of the convent of St. Catherine from a Greek book entitled The Holy Monastery of Sinai by Pericles Gregoriados, professor in the Theological School of the Holy Sepulchre, Jerusalem, 1875. In the midst of a dry and parched wilderness, there rises up before the eyes of the traveller, wearied by the heat of the sun and the barrenness of the land, a green oasis, refreshing and comforting. In the midst of an almost entire absence of human labour, in the midst of a silence like that of the dead, where there is no living creature and no social intercourse, suddenly there appears a little hearth of industry and a light cooling breeze of life. And above all, in the midst of a land in which, otherwise, neither the nightingale of the muses sings the song of civilization, nor the peaceful trumpet of the gospel is heard teaching the salvation of the world, there, in the midst of bald mountains and steep rocks, the exiled worship of Greek letters found a home for itself ages ago, and the dove of orthodoxy, flying from the deluge of religious bigotry, built her nest in the loved tabernacles of the Lord. A handful of men, flying from the noisy world, following the mystic voice of the earthquake and the echo of old-world trumpets. Note, Exodus chapter 19, verses 13 through 19, end of note, surrounded the awful mount of God, and pitched their tents in those places where Jehovah in cloud and smoke and thunder and lightning carried out the moral education of ancient Israel, that they might bring their earthly lives as an offering to God, carrying about with them Hellenism and orthodoxy. Barren nature was amazed at their adamantine morals, the savageness of the aborigines or of the nomad inhabitants, who were often infuriated against them, was diminished or subdued, and cringed in astonishment at their feet. Emperors honored their virtue. Conquerors were pleased with their tried prudence. Popes showed their goodwill. Kings and dukes scattered gifts upon them. The great Napoleon, in granting them privileges and honors, was seized by a sweet emotion and a great admiration when he found their house inhabited par des homes instruits et policies milieu des barbares du desert. And above all, crowds of pious and learned men sail the seas and cross the wilderness, that they may be witnesses of these things, that they may behold this strange juxtaposition of things so opposite, and reverently visit the hoary monuments which have escaped the deluge of barbarism and the overturning spade of the centuries. Such is the monastery of Sinai. The sacred historical reasons for such a building existing in this place are, first, the wonderful bush which the Hebrew lawgiver, Moses, saw burning and not consumed, and secondly, the well where the fair daughters of Jethro watered their father's flocks with trouble. Therefore both these spots were embraced in the great enclosure of Justinian, which was four square, 245 Parisian feet in length, and 204 in breadth. Within this enclosure are likewise the many small and somewhat rotten cells of the fathers, an unsymmetrical number of little chapels and temples, the historic and miraculous Ottoman mosque, 
the time of whose erection is not accurately known, but which must be much earlier than A.D. 1381, when we have the first recorded mention of its existence. And last, not least, the most important of all, the splendid Catholic temple, and the shabby, ill-placed, crumbling rooms which contain many biblical treasures. Of these two, the Catholic temple is still in splendid condition, a proof of imperial piety and magnificence. A fine and hoary monument, admirable as a work of art, in the truest and best taste, and in particular a valuable relic of the Byzantine style in workmanship, but entirely in the midst of a dreary desert, amid gigantic masses of mountain and towering rocks, a tender shoot of fragrant rose or slender lily in a ground bearing thorns and briars. All the other parts of this temple are surpassed by the holy altar, whose nature and art, where matter and spirit, rivaling one another, have produced works in which a glorious harmony is reflected, most grateful to the soul of the beholder. In this holy temple we must also mention the three sarcophagi of the Virgin Mary, of which the oldest is marble and exquisite workmanship. The other two are silver, one having been sent as a pious gift by the Empress Catherine the Great, the other being the fruit of Christian subscriptions, yet the holy remains of the saint are kept in the first mentioned. Amongst the collections of many books, stowed away in diverse rooms, may be found not only many valuable examples in which is developed the mystery of the art of calligraphy, which flourished in an extraordinary manner before Gutenberg's inventions, but also monuments having a great and important influence on account of their contents on the spread of ecclesiastical philology. The study of such treasures has a double and a weighty use for noble souls taking refuge from time to time in this asylum of solitary meditation and tranquility, treasured them up in this intellectual oasis of the Sinaitic desert, aided by the philosophical custom of condemning those who had broken the rigidity of monastic rules to make copies of the manuscripts. We are all well acquainted with the story of the sacred codex, called the Sinaiticus, which escaped shipwreck for nearly fifteen centuries, having been safely buried here till these latter days, when Constantine Tischendorf, so expert in sacred paleography, out of the vaults, as he said, brought it to the light, and succeeded in obtaining it for publication at the Sinaitic Synod held in Cairo in 1859, from the newly elected, but not yet consecrated, Archbishop Cyril, Constantine I having just died. He received it nominally for a time, ad tempus, but practically, and in truth, till it should be finally and eternally given away by the young archbishop. Of this venerable relic of so many ages, written on fine yellow vellum, the overjoyed finder prepared a splendid facsimile edition with the help of imperial Russian funds, an edition which he described as sufficient as far as possible for the learned who are curious about such relics, and worthy of the prince at whose expense it has been made. But what a strange impression is caused by the sight of the original, of which I succeeded in seeing at Sinai only a few decayed leaves, strangely separated from the bindings of other books and treasured here. Besides this, there are still many important vellum manuscripts of the fathers of the church, and also writings upon paper of other learned men, among which I may mention the valuable manuscript of Athanasius Espelantes, 
three only out of whose twelve books were published a few years ago by the late learned Sinaite, Germanus the Athlonides. In order to make an exhaustive study of all the Sinaitic books, one would require to know not only the Greek language, but also Slavonic, Syriac, Arabic, and Iberian, in each of which there are valuable manuscripts which awaken the admiration of the masters of learning. Many European students visit the convent every year, but very few of them, or rather none of our scholars, have been able till now, so far as I know, to see and investigate scientifically the Greek books, and especially to examine the various manuscripts of ancient liturgies and other ecclesiastical books, which, if they were well studied and received the attention they deserve, might throw light on many things, and fill up many blanks in our modern study of liturgiology. Note by Mrs. Gibson. A very full and scholarly catalogue of the Greek books has been made by a Russian archimandrite named Antoninus. It remains at the convent and is much prized by Galactean, who will never give out a Greek book without solemnly reading you a full and particular description of it from the said catalogue. This catalogue has never been printed. Gardhausen's catalogue, which borrows largely from it, is very bald, and gives no idea of the beauty and interesting contents of some of the magnificent martyrologies which I saw on my last visit. But of the Semitic books there has never till now been a catalogue made. The exploit of Tischendorf seems to have made the monks so suspicious of Western scholars that they have hitherto refused permission to anyone to ransack their shelves, and I therefore felt as if I had accomplished a daring feat this year, when at Cairo I persuaded the archbishop to let me undertake the task. It so happened that the day on which this permission was given was my own and my sister's birthday. To return to Gregoriados. On account of the want of a proper catalogue of the library, and of a decent arrangement of the books, I cannot, unfortunately, tell anything exactly about their whole number. Therefore it is superfluous to say that the most crying want in this holy monastery is the building of a proper library, and the making of an exact list of the books, in order that these valuable relics may not become food for moths and other abominations. I call them relics because, besides other things, it appears that at least during the last two centuries not a few of the books have been taken away, partly through ignorance, partly through the beneficence of the monks in more recent times. Thus Lord W. Turner, Journal, London, 1820, Volume 2, page 443, brought away from there to Europe not a few choice manuscripts, such as one of Hephaestion about measures, a speech of Isocrates, the first three books of the Iliad, tragedies of Aeschylus, the Medea of Euripides, the beginning of Hippolytus, and other similar volumes and these disappeared for the most part after the publication of the great codex, the Sinaiticus. The cause of their loss was the want of a proper library and a regular catalogue. Perhaps one of these two evils will be lessened by the catalogue which has been made during the last few months by the learned archimandrite of the Russian communion, K. Antoninus, who, during a visit to the convent six years ago, spent whole months working among its books. The study of this library offers a profitable field, especially to those of our scholars who have devoted themselves to the study and filling up the pages of our early history. Note by Mrs. Gibson. These remarks of Gregoriados apply to the Greek library only, but he seems to have known little about the Semitic one, 
we can only emphasize his remarks about the necessity of a suitable room, and we may add suitable bookcases in which said treasures should be housed. Gregoriados continues. History of the Convent when, on the one hand, the dawn of gospel preaching began to chase the thick clouds of idolatry, and on the other hand, frightful storms and torrents of persecution arose, which, bursting upon cities and villages, troubled and frightened the faithful, then the ardent votaries of the new doctrine of the cross ran, some of them, into the arena of confession and martyrdom, while others, withdrawing themselves quietly from the world, fled to the deserts, seeking there for meditation and peace of mind. Of all lands, Egypt was most distinguished in this respect, and the Theban deserts could see in their bosom Paul of Thebes, A.D. 250, the founder of monastic and anchorite life, and Antony the Great, 261 through 356, who caused the cities to be deserted and the deserts to be populated, as the church sings in extolling him on account of which the sojourn in these places being dangerous and adventuresome, the sacred names of Sinai and Horeb, and the regions around them, drew from every direction crowds of monks upon the mount of God, upon the holy place of the mystic bush, by the well of the daughters of Jethro, and about the cave of the awful visions and ecstasies of the Tishbite. Thus the deserts of this land were truly peopled, and thousands of Christians fled into the asylum which they offered, fearing captivity and butchery at the hands of the Saracens. This is testified to, first by Dionysius of Alexandria, about A.D. 205. Secondly, it is clearly shown by the miraculous transportation by angels to these mountains of the body of the virgin martyr Catherine, A.D. 307. And thirdly, by the visit to these parts of the abbot Silvanus, who remained there and superintended many anchorites. Fourthly, the narrative of Ammonius the Cenobite, about A.D. 373, coming from Palestine to Sinai to worship, and the still more faithful narrative of the eparch Nihilus, A.D. 390-451, through 451, who both relate frightful massacres and atrocities by the savage tribes, and above all, by the existence of ruins of old monasteries in many places, and of caves of hermits, which all testify that in truth many thousands of anchorites and other Christians had crowded to these inhospitable regions long before the time of Justinian. The life and conduct of these holy exiles was truly an exact study of death, as says Procopius of Caesarea, of the Sinites of his day for eschewing all evil as much as was possible to men, cultivating the tree of ascetic virtue with enthusiasm, they dwelt far from one another with humility and austerity in the mountains and caves and holes of this cheerless land, from which they came down and assembled every Lord's Day in the church, where they celebrated the divine mysteries and feasted together, the most learned among them imparting instruction to the others. According to tradition, and to the testimony of an Arab historian, this church was built over the holy bush, round which the empress mother Helena raised a tower for the protection of the monks from attack, about which, nevertheless, we have no other trustworthy historical information. But this little colony of saints in the peninsula of Sinai could not so easily find peace and security, for so early as the reign of Diocletian, 
the barbarous tribes of Blamua laid waste the coast towns and massacred the fathers who dwelt at Ritho, Tor, while on the same day the monks of Sinai were put to death, and everything belonging to them was destroyed without mercy. Even in later times, the scourge of such attacks never ceased to trouble the weak anchorites, nor did the rocks of the holy mountain ever cease to be stained with their innocent blood, till nearly the middle of the sixth century, when a new leaf was turned in the history of the Sinai monks, and a new epoch was consecrated under the sway of one of the great Byzantine emperors. After the death of Justin I, 518-527, the scepter of the Byzantine kingdom was taken by his nephew Justinian, who during his long reign greatly raised the dignity of the state, and who was distinguished for unwearied activity and the greatest magnanimity. But what no less than political activity and martial successes adorns and distinguishes the name of the great Justinian among the kings of the earth is his great and wise piety about holy things, and his noble generosity in the erection of philanthropic buildings, especially of convents and churches. Procopius of Caesarea relates that Justinian the emperor was asked by a deputation from the monks at Sinai, since they had nothing of what they required, they who were superior to all men, nothing in the way of possessions, nor even what was necessary for their bodies, nor even anything that they could buy in a hurry, to build a church, which he dedicated to the Virgin, so that they might live there in prayer and sacrifice. He did not fear the overthrow of this church from the mountain above, but he feared it from below. For it is impossible for a man to pass the night on the top of the mountain, seeing that constant knockings and other divine noises are heard there at night, astonishing the power and wit of mankind. Before such a clear testimony of a contemporary, all doubt is taken away that the present monastery was built by the Emperor Justinian, and another testimony is to be found in the inscriptions on the beams of the Basilica, the Catholic temple, of which the one on the sixth beam says, For the salvation of our pious Emperor Justinian, and the one on the seventh, for the remembrance of the repose of our late Empress Theodora. A much clearer and more exact account than that of Procopius is that furnished to us about the building of the monastery by Eutychus, patriarch of Alexandria, who flourished in the second half of the ninth century, in the Arab chronicle attributed to him, the original of which is in the Sinai library, but most of which is embodied in Greek in the sacred history of Nectar of Crete, published in 1805, who was afterwards Patriarch of Jerusalem, 1661-1669, through 1669, which has attracted much attention from modern travelers. He relates that the Emperor Justinian, granting the request of the Sinaitic anchorites, commanded the Eparch of Egypt to supply the necessary funds out of the Egyptian taxes, and also himself sent a skilled superintendent of the work. This superintendent laid the foundation of the monastery upon its present site, on account of its being the easiest spot for the purpose, and because there was water there, and one did not hear the echoes and thunderings as one does at the summit of the mountain. Note, the Bedouin hearing this echo say that the spirit of Moses descends from Sinai. End of note. Besides this, the emperor sent to guard the monks a hundred families, and commanded a hundred more to be sent from Egypt, and appointed Dulos as their ruler. 
The architect was certainly Stephen, as is testified by the inscription on the thirteenth beam of the church, which runs thus, O Lord God, who hast revealed thyself in this place, save and have mercy upon thy servant Stephen, the maker of this monastery, etc. We know nothing of the history of Sinai immediately after this epoch, except that about the end of the same century the new building was visited by Antony the Martyr, who found in it many monks, among whom were three speaking four languages. But about the same time the birth at Mecca of Muhammad, the reformer of the Arab race, was destined to give a new turn to the history of Sinai, as a new people, till then nearly strangers, were brought into close relationship with it, and carried the teaching of the new leader amongst the tribes of the Nebataeans and Saracens, and to the little guard whom Justinian had sent to protect the colony. This relationship, and the influence of Muhammad and his immediate followers, is not apparently confined to that alone, but assumes a more particular character, and a more immediate contact, by means of which the Sinaites were able to survive after the destruction of so many of their companions, and to escape many storms of terrible evil. In the second year of Hegira, A.D. 624, two Christian leaders attacked some of Muhammad's followers and put them to flight. On hearing of this, the Prophet hastened with more than 3,000 warriors, gave battle to these Christian princes, and in conquering them gained his first success in arms. The Christians around the Red Sea, having received quickly news of the power of the Apostle of God, ran to pay homage to him, and to give their submission, whereupon the prudent Sinites, understanding the signs of the times, went also and did homage, and asked protection for their monastery. The eloquence of these clever monks was such that the young Arab conqueror was charmed, and he did not confine himself to showing his friendship and pleasure by word alone. But after a year he came to Sinai in person, honored and worshipped the holy mountain, and commanded all those with him to revere that sacred place, where God revealed to Moses a thousand and one words. Then the monks received him with bows and salutations, and so gratified him that he gave them the celebrated testament as an assurance of everlasting protection. The Arabs of the district preserve the tradition of Muhammad's visit to Sinai, and on the summit of Jebel Musa they show the print of his camel's foot imprinted in the porphyritic granite, and lead travelers to the place where the beloved of God sat in judgment. This document, the Testament, wrought many miracles in the hands of the clever Sinite who obtained it. Having built an Ottoman mosque inside the monastery, he ran here and there and succeeded often in obtaining from the Muslims advantages and privileges not only for himself, but for all the Orthodox clergy and for the religious observances of our race. End of section 8. Recording by Hannah Mary.